I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and down the line from the US, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. Our guests this week are Manus Costello here in London, who is a banks analyst at Autonomous, the independent research house. And in the US, Ben is talking to the head of Elevate, a subprime lender based in Texas. This week, we'll be talking about the latest results from HSBC and Standard Chartered in the UK. Secondly, we'll be looking at the prospects for Brexit and what that means for banks in the city. And finally, in the US, a look at the resurgence of subprime lending. First, though, to the latest results on Tuesday, we had a record loss, or rather the first loss for, I think, more than 20 years at Standard Chartered, uh, and also the previous day, some rather uh, unimpressive results from HSBC. Martin, what did you take away from them? Quite a contrast uh, between the two banks. Standard Chartered, as you said, on Tuesday, shares fell another 5% after the bank reported a, a net loss of over $2 billion hit by big restructuring charges, another big increase in impairments for bad loans, and also a very sharp 15% fall in revenue hit by uh, clients, uh, leaving both clients that it wants to get rid of and also some that it would have liked to have kept. But uh, with all the staff cuts and restructuring going on, it's losing quite a bit of revenue. So there are continued concerns about the health of Standard Chartered. Bill Winters, the new, relatively new chief executive, has said his top management team have decided not to take any bonuses for the past year, said that the results are very poor, and he expects, he's warning that, that 2016 is going to be pretty rocky as well. But, you know, he says that they've taken the tough measures now, the restructuring's in place, and he's confident that even in these tough conditions with slowdown in emerging markets, and particularly uh, Standard Chartered, which is one of the most exposed to commodities and the commodity cycle coming to an abrupt end in the last couple of years, he's still confident that they've done the right things and they've taken the right concrete actions, as he said, to get the bank back on track where they're aiming for a return on equity of 10% by 2020. So bad were the losses that one analyst asked him about whether they could seek to exercise clawback against the previous management team led by Peter Sands, who ran the bank for about eight years on a big growth push, and whether some of those uh, management team could be forced to be return some of their bonuses because of the huge losses that have been revealed in that big build-up of risk under uh, their management. And he said that 150 current and former members of Stanchart staff are being internally investigated to see uh, whether they are accountable and responsible for uh, various numbers of, of failings that have been discovered since Bill Winters took over. How does that pretty bearish outlook from Stanchart compare with HSBC on Monday? So HSBC, much stronger. Their pre-tax profits were pretty flat, slightly up, at about $18 billion. So pretty rock-solid performance from then. However, provisions did inch up. They took another $400 million provision for their oil and gas portfolio, gave a lot more detail around that as a lot of banks 
banks are doing at the moment. And they said the costs continue to to inch up, uh, particularly driven by regulatory and and compliance costs. So they are struggling to rein in their cost base. And also the analysts are very concerned about their dividend because their payout ratio with the the fall in their share price recently has now reached 8%, which a lot of analysts think is unsustainable. Now, Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive, was at pains to insist that by restructuring the balance sheet and shifting a lot of assets away from non-performing business towards higher returning activities such as in China, that the bank would be able to continue paying its dividend, particularly uh, by stripping out $5 billion of costs, which he said the bank was on track to achieve. And that seemed to satisfy most of the analysts that I spoke to, that even though it looks extremely high yield of 8%, which, by the way, is higher than the bank itself achieves as a return on its own shareholders' equity. 7.2% is their return on equity. So, I mean, pretty extraordinary times. But, you know, HSBC is sticking to its guns on its dividend. Okay, well, we'll come back to the other UK banks in the next week or so. But for now, that's an interesting contrasting tale of two rather Asian-focused banks and how they're faring. Well, sticking with our UK focus, we're going to look at Brexit now. This has obviously been uh, very much in the news over the past few days following David Cameron's negotiation of some changes to the UK's relationship with the EU ahead of a referendum in June. That has meant that the city has been abuzz with all kinds of speculation and projections of what Brexit might mean to city institutions. Laura, you've been looking in particular at the US banks, which are, of course, very much anchored in London as a kind of springboard to the European continent. Yeah, I mean, Brexit is all kinds of bad for the US banks. I mean, the US banks use London for their access to the common EU market. And there's serious question marks over what that would mean just in terms of their ability to sell products in the EU, which are made here to sell services into the EU from London. It also raises issues on the staffing front because a lot of them would have people working in London from all over the world. If they now need to go and get like visas for all their EU people, that would make it a lot more difficult. Then there's the big macroeconomic concerns as well, and there's a lot of uncertainty. So generally, the US banks would like Britain to stay in the EU. A number of them have actually given money to the Stay In campaign. Those would be led by the likes of Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, um, because they are so keen to have the UK stay in the EU. Now, the only challenge there is that there's others in banking who will say that they actually privately think that this isn't that helpful to be giving money because it can make it seem as if the drive to stay in the EU is being dominated by banks, being dominated by US banks in particular, and that might kind of alienate the more general electorate. So there is some division of view as to how banks should actually go about expressing their support of staying in the EU, but certainly there is a lot of support. I mean, for anyone who's following um, Twitter, the former government Sachs International Chairman Peter Sutherland has become very active on the Twitter machine in the last couple of days, tweeting almost hourly about the Brexit situation. So we're in no doubt as to his views anyway. And Laura, what does that mean in practice? I mean, if Brexit did go ahead, I'm guessing that uh, different banks would have different options in terms of where they might uh, kind of shift locations to in order to have that 
springboard into the EU single market? Yeah, I mean, it does very much depend on the terms of the, of the Brexit as well, because there is an option or there is the possibility of a kind of harmonious Brexit where common market access is retained. Then if we look at if we lose common market access, a, l- a number of the large US banks would have a presence in other EU countries, Ireland, Frankfurt, France. Now, the thing about those presences are there's different types of licences. So just because you have a licence in, say, Ireland, for some of your activity doesn't mean that you could do all of your activity from that base. So there are complexities around that. But I mean, everybody's working assumption is that there would be a number of years to actually work through the logistical implications, but they do all need to have a plan that they can put to the market fairly soon. So I mean, in one bank, they've done actually six different exit plans, depending on how the exit would actually go, but they will have that ready to go to market to say, listen, this is how we're hoping to handle it. But the execution would take several years and there's obviously considerable execution risk as well. Now, you've been talking there about foreign banks using London as, a, as their European centre. Uh, of course, the UK banks are naturally anchored here. And we're joined now by Manus Costello, who's a banks analyst at Autonomous, who's done some work looking at exactly how UK banks would be hit by Brexit. Uh, Manus, welcome. You uh, have been looking at the precise impact on UK banks from uh, any Brexit Uh, And you've come up with uh, a fairly hard-hitting conclusion. You think UK banks on average stand to lose about 20% of their value if the uh, the UK leaves the EU. That's right. Uh, We have split up how a Brexit in a pessimistic scenario, when the UK leaves and doesn't stay as part of the EEA, for example, we've split up how that would impact the banks into three different areas, some one-off costs, primarily from an expected recession, so higher provisioning for the banks as they they lose money on loans, some ongoing costs, uh, particularly some increase in funding costs for the banks. That's both for the banks based in the UK, but also if the banks are having to fund themselves from new EU-based subsidiaries, some of the wholesale banks like Barclays, for example, might see higher funding costs from that new EU subsidiary. Uh, And lastly, I think the overall cost of equity for the banks would probably rise, partly because yields on UK bonds would rise, but also because people might speculate that the longer-term outlook for the banks uh, is less rosy than it was. So it's really a three-part impact. And on average, we come up with about a 20% impact to each of the domestic banks. And just to be clear, the, your your point about funding costs there, the, 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 basically the coupons that the banks would have to pay on their own bonds would rise. Is that that's because you expect uh, a downgrade in, in the UK sovereign debt rating and, and therefore kind of carry over from that? That's right. There are two aspects to that. One is, as you say, uh, the UK sovereign would be downgraded most likely, uh, and that would cause an increase to, to most UK banks that issue with reference to the UK yield curve. But there are also some specifics for the banks who can currently use the passporting regime within the EU to fund their EU operations from the UK effectively. That would obviously be broken if we left the EU. Uh, and those banks would then have to fund locally within the EU. So you would have to get your Paris branch to become a separate subsidiary, and it would have to raise all of its funding locally. And I expect that would cost more than doing it centrally from London at the moment. It's obviously just a hypothesis. The banks might reject that, but I think it's a a decent working assumption uh, that for a a wholesale bank in particular, uh, it would be more expensive to fund those EU ex-UK 
loans that you've been making. Well, at the very least, uh, they're going to have to go through the cost of setting up those subsidiaries. So I suppose that adds to cost anyway. A final point then, uh, Manus, if you could put this in the broader context. Obviously, we've seen uh, a couple of months now of pretty disrupted markets. You might say that a Brexit kind of addition to this cocktail is the last thing that banks anywhere, uh, and especially banks in Britain, need right now. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, look, we wrote our research earlier in January suggesting there might be a 20% hit, and a number of the names are down about 20% since then. Uh, I don't think what's really been driving them, though, to be honest, uh, is Brexit concerns so far. Um, We did a poll of our investors, uh, and our investors said that on average they thought the hit, this was before reading our research, I should say, on average they thought the hit might be about 20%, uh, and that they thought that uh, there was about a 24% chance that the UK were to leave. So based on what our investors are telling us, we think the market is probably priced in about a quarter of the risk of Brexit at this point. Um, but it's obviously very difficult to be precise on these things. Well, clearly that and, and plenty of other risks still around to hit the bank's shares over the coming months. Uh, Manus, thanks very much for joining us. Now, let me just bring in uh, Martin here for a final word on, on the Brexit topic. One of the aspects of Brexit that's in the news is uh, this letter that business leaders have been signing en masse to suggest that it would be a really bad idea for Britain to vote for Brexit. How many bankers have, are on that list? Have we, have we got all of the big banks signing up to that protest? No, no, we don't. In fact, more haven't signed it than have. HSBC's chairman, Douglas Flint, and chief executive Stuart Gulliver have signed the letter, as has the chief executive of Standard Chartered, Bill Winters. Interestingly, HSBC would be affected, but not massively, and not as much as arguably uh, Royal Bank of Scotland and Barclays perhaps would. Um, Certainly Barclays uh, would probably be the most affected. But the two chief executives of HSBC and Standard Chartered in the last two days have both been asked about it, and both played down the impact. HSBC said it would, uh, because of the uncertainty on the terms of which uh, UK would be able to continue having access to the single market and particularly for financial services and this passporting arrangement for companies to be able to operate across the EU. If that was not available, then they would probably move a 1,000 of their 5,000 investment banking staff from London to their other big investment banking hub in Europe, which is in Paris. Standard Chartered said that it would have a minimal impact on them. Bill Winter said that he felt that it was important for Britain to remain part of the EU and it would be damaging if Britain left, but that uh, Standard Chartered, which has uh, most of its activities in Asia, the Middle East and Africa, would itself suffer very little uh, impact. So interestingly, those that are most impacted don't seem to have signed up and and those that are perhaps least have signed up to the letter. Don't think there's anything in that. (laughs) Interesting and I'm sure there'll be lots more uh, news on this whole topic as it affects the city over the next four months ahead of that referendum. Let's go to our final topic for the day which is uh, over in the US. Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Ken Reese, who's chief executive of Elevate, an up-and-coming subprime lender based in Texas. Um, ben started by asking Ken Reese uh, exactly what their typical customer looked like. What's What's interesting about our customer base, which we refer to as non-prime consumers, is just how big the market has gotten. Uh, now we believe there's more non-prime consumers in the U.S. than prime consumers, and if we, we define our customer base as those that either have a credit score less than 700 or no credit score at all because they don't have a sufficient credit history. And the options for our customers are not great. Banks continue to pull back. In fact, banks reduced another $150 billion from non-prime lending in the past couple of years. And uh, the existing 
uh, legacy non-prime lenders like Pond, Payday, and Title have, have, have deeply flawed products. So mm -hmm. we've got a great opportunity to use technology to bring a new generation of credit products. And can you just describe just quickly for me the, the competitor set? Um, who, who are you lining up against to, to supply this, this this kind of product? Really, in the, the old world, competitors we face are uh, storefront lenders like Payday and mm -hmm. Pawn and Title Lenders and Installment Lenders. There's a few online lenders that are trying to do some of the things that we've been doing for a while now. Um, but we've been serving this market with uh, online products for over a decade and have a pretty good lead in the online space. And how is the portfolio holding up? Because I, I talked to a lot of online marketplace lenders uh, like Lending Club and, and Prosper recently have put up their, their rates for the riskiest yes. tranches of borrowers because they fear that... Uh, their returns to investors otherwise will be will be hurt. What, what kind of trends are you seeing? Yeah, it's a real misconception about the market. Certainly when you lend to a non-prime consumer, there's a higher likelihood of loss. But in a recessionary environment, um, our customer base is actually less prone to, to increases in defaults. So for instance, we uh, made loans to customers from 2006 to 2011 and our charge-off rate stayed incredibly flat. And that's due to the fact that our customers in many cases are living in a recessionary environment all the time and know how to deal with income instability. Also, uh, it's due to the fact that in a recessionary environment, the, the prime lenders, banks and, and other lenders, typically tighten up their credit scores. So we end up actually with higher quality credit coming through the door in a recession. So we feel we're, if not uh, counter-cyclical, at least an acyclical business and should be able to continue to grow significantly and continue with uh, strong credit quality. Okay. And let's talk about the, the regulatory environment because the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the U.S. has been looking at the, uh, the small dollar loans area with a view to, to bringing um, the players under, under it seems, a, a tighter leash. Is, is that a threat to your outlook? Oh, we think it's, it's, it's what's needed in this space for, for a couple of reasons. One is uh, there are problems with a lot of the um, legacy products that our customers use. They can oftentimes lead to a cycle of debt or even worse, what we consider to be a cycle of subprime, where once their credit rating has dropped, it's almost impossible to get that credit rating back up to prime levels. So we think the CFPB is doing the right thing in terms of trying to eliminate potential consumer harm. Uh, while keeping access to credit available to the millions of, of Americans that, that need it. And then ultimately, I believe as the regulatory environment evolves and people know the ground rules, there's going to be more innovation, which is also needed in this space. Yeah, I remember talking to one of your competitors, uh, LendUp, and they, they talk about customers graduating to cheaper credit as a result of taking lots of loans and demonstrating uh, an ability to, to, to pay it back. Is, is that the kind of thing you were talking about? Yeah, this is the core challenge facing our industry is not just serving that customer's immediate need for credit, but helping them be better with it. We'll start a customer out at a rate that's a fraction of a payday loan, but then as customers use the product, we drop those rates down to 36%. And this is still high interest credit, but for a customer that may have been paying 5 or 600% for a payday loan, to be able to get their, their APR down to 36% is transformative. Also, though, we report to credit bureaus, we provide uh, financial literacy tools and budgeting tools, and even free credit monitoring, uh, all with the idea that, it's, that it's, it's important for lenders to help consumers progress to better financial habits and ultimately more financial options. As I understand it, the CFEB is producing something later on this year, some kind of um, best practices for, for uh, installment credit. To what extent will that um, threaten your outlook? We've 
talked to the CFPB quite a bit. In fact, we were part of a of a group working with uh, industry and consumer groups to come up with uh, common ground recommendations for the CFPB and their ongoing rulemaking. And uh, like I said, we think they're really trying to do the right things. Uh, they're not trying to do things that are going to limit access to credit, but make sure that the lenders that are providing credit are actually using real underwriting and not predicating the credit on being able to take title to the car or aggressive collections tactics and all okay. things that w- we have never done as a company. As I understand it, they're trying to pull people out of a, a cycle of, of replacing one high, expensive uh, short-term loan with another. Is, is that your experience, that most of your customers are repeat customers? Well, yes. I mean, we, we uh, to date, uh, are about half of our customer originations are from former customers. And I think it suggests that customers value the service we provide. Also, that they're starting to see that progression. They're seeing their rates going down over time. Uh, hopefully, they're also seeing their credit scores improving. And, you know, we... Uh, would like to believe our customers are going to have more options for different forms of credit. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to be as a positive a lender to the customers to help them both while they're facing their biggest financial challenges, but also uh, being able to serve them as they continue to improve their financial status. And just coming back finally to the IPO, you said that's very much on. You said there was lots of demand when you tried to, to sell the stock a few weeks ago, but uh, of course the markets uh, prevented it. But it, it's still on. Well, I, th- I think with with a unique growth story like ours, there are very few companies in uh, this economy that can show 150% compound annual growth rate over the past few years that have the huge uh, market size that we do with over half of Americans needing better forms of non-prime credit. Uh, and with the experience that we do, uh, having been through the recession, I think we are in a u- unique opportunity to continue to grow and generate terrific uh, returns. And uh, hopefully the market will stabilize a little bit uh, and we might try again. Ken Rees, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio, our guest, uh, Manus Costello from Autonomous, and also Ben in the US with his guest, Ken Rees from Elevate. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com. This week by Martin Staber, Alex Wisniewska, and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.